What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So the term Hollywood royalty gets tossed around maybe more often than warranted, sometimes merely surviving the ecosystem for more than a few decades in the industry of entertainment and a town that favors youth perhaps more than anywhere else on the planet, at a minimum warrants some acknowledgement of survivor skills. Well, Dolores Robinson may not be a household name, but I can assure you she is Hollywood royalty. A youthful 87 years of age, Dolores has that kind of smooth face that LL rapped about in Round the Way Girl when he said, honey-coated complexion from using Kame. Dolores has been defying the odds her whole life. Dolores may be recognizable to some after appearing on Meet the Peets, a reality show with her family, daughter Holly Robinson Pete, husband Rodney Pete, and one of my all-time favorite people on the planet, Dolores' son and Holly's brother, Matt Robinson. To those of us who have known her for decades or anyone who has been involved in the business side of Hollywood for as long, Know Dolores as a trailblazing talent manager and power player who made her name when there were few women, much less women of color, with any influence on the business side of showbiz. I asked Dolores to join me today to talk about her life, her career, and to share some of her wisdom from some 40 years spent in the City of Angels. Without further ado, I want to welcome the lovely Dolores Robinson. Hey, Dolores, what's up? Brad, how are you? Why, this is fun. Oh, good. Um, fantastic. So before we move forward, I have to give a shout out to our mutual dear friend, Brother Larry Robinson, who after having a lunch with you a few weeks ago in Palm Springs, called me and said, you have got to get Dolores on Corner Table Talk. She has the most amazing stories. And I was like, Larry, of course. So thank you, Larry, my man. So, Dolores, we have Larry to thank for bringing us together today. Not that it wouldn't have happened eventually. But that Larry has been loudly proclaiming that I am his mother for years. And he has the most incredible mother who just turned 100. I know. What an amazing woman. He actually, uh, he sent around a little her biography, which I had no idea about how accomplished his mom is. It's amazing. Exactly. Larry didn't just appear. <laughs> he came from somewhere. <laughs> yes. So, Dolores, we start things here at Corner Table Talk with what I call short order questions. So these are just a few little things to get us rolling, and I'm going to fire a few off at you and get your reaction. So I'm curious, what music are you listening to these days? That is a great question. My family makes fun of me because I have no ears. My daughter can sing, Max Musically Talented. My grandchildren have musical talents. I have none. I could be halfway through a Stevie Wonder song and not even know it was Stevie Wonder. I just, just have no ears. I love music. There's a friend that I've had for a hundred years named Daisy Fuentes. Daisy. Mm-hmm. Daisy's husband is Richard Marks. And they invited me to come to his concert here in Palm Springs. I went. I've never heard of him. I've never heard of music. 
And I admitted to him, I said, come on, Richard, I'm not going to lie. I was listening to Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. But that concert was so wonderful. And the thing that I found out about him, and ever since then, every once in a while, I have Richard Marks say music, because I just love the music. He did write that song, Dance With My Father. So this right. event, yeah, he did. Yeah. But listening, mm-hmm. me, music, ever comes on comes on and Matt gave me this little box to try to help me, this little portable music thing. And I plug my thing into Pandora, Spotify, or something like that. That's really way above my favorite. And then I listen to Linda Ronstadt because she's my girlfriend. I listen to Marvin Gaye because I was in love. I miss I listen to whatever pleases me. And then I have this great ear for classical music. Whatever makes me feel good. Fair enough. You should know that Matt and I have been exchanging playlists the last couple of months. So I'll send him a playlist and he'll send me back a playlist. And we try to shock each other with our mixes. And it's just a lot of fun. We go back and forth. I love that. So Dolores, tell me, what's the first beverage that you consume in the morning? Coffee. Coffee. No, water. Water. I always begin with my 16-ounce water bottle. And then I go straight to coffee. All right. I can tell you drink a lot of water because you have that, as I explained earlier, complexion from using Kame and drinking a lot of water. So how about diet-wise? What are you eating? Vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, other? For 44 of my, you gave me an extra year, 86 years. We'll correct that. Honey, I love it. I'll take it. For 44 of my 86 years, I was a vegetarian. Dick Gregory came along early in my life and changed a lot of eating habits for me. Then I went through a period where I called myself a vegetarian, which was a vegetarian who ate bacon because I've suffered too long without it. And now I'm what I call a flexitarian. I eat any damn thing I please, but I don't eat very much meat and I eat all organic foods. Uh, if you invite me to your house, I'm not rude enough to say, is this organic? I don't do that. And if I go to a restaurant, I don't say, is this organic? But since I eat almost all my meals at home, I cook and eat organic. Good for you. Simply because I don't like carrots. Good for you. Smart. So tell me, you're living in Palm Springs, Dolores. What do you like most about living there? The ease of living here. If I want to go shopping at the supermarket up at Ralph's up the street, it's three minutes away. And I hardly ever pass a car getting there. It's just easy. One day about a month ago, somebody blew a horn at me. It was the first time in four years that somebody blew a horn at me and it was my fault because I was sitting out of light too long or something. But it's just an easier way of living. There's no hassle. I drive to LA. I'm scared of driving in LA. But I drive. I call myself Danica Dolores because Danica can drive. In my 80s, I just drove up to LA in one day and came back the same day. The day that Holly got that start, which we'll talk about, I drove up that morning and then drove back that afternoon. At 86, I drove up to LA and back. That's a lot. But Danica can drive. Let's, let's jump in and I want to segue to what brought about the decision to move to Palm Springs? Was it the proximity to the family, the ease that you just described going back and forth? Or what prompted that move, Dolores? It certainly wasn't proximity to family. It was away from family. One of the things that brought the move on is because 
when you're me or when you're a mother, grandmother, et cetera, you have to learn to mind your business. And I was living in Holly Rodney's guest house while we were doing the reality show. And I just found it wasn't minding my business because I have too many opinions on how to raise children, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, right. I had this girlfriend, did you know Hope Evans? No. She lived in Yale. She, and I always wanted to be her. Hope, as a school teacher, she wound up teaching in all the private schools in, in LA. And when I graduated from college and started teaching, we were roommates in Philadelphia. When I moved into Philadelphia, she was my roommate. She, when she retired, moved to Palm Springs. And I would come down here and visit her. And it was so peaceful. And so I said, okay, and moved here. Just like that. Just got the car and drove here, found a place, and been living happily ever after. I love Palm Springs. My wife and I were there a few months ago, actually, back in, I think it was February. And it was just beautiful. You won't ever come again without visiting? I will not. No, I will not. We've visited our dear friends, Dale and Jenny, but we are visiting you next time for sure. Yep. I know Matt was also living in the desert and he recently moved to Texas. So do you miss Matt yet? Oh, I'm such a loner. People have asked me questions like, your son, first of all, he had Cindy moved here basically because of me. And they needed five minutes from me, but I hardly ever saw them because it, it, that's the mushiest, loveliest couple you've ever been around. And sometimes the, the lovely lovely mush gets a little much. But, but we saw each other once in a while. But people kept ask me how I felt about Matt moving to Texas. And my answer is very clear. I want Matt to live anywhere she lives. She takes such spectacular care of my boy. She's just, she's a phenomenal woman. I have this thing called WWCD, what would Cindy do.com, because she knows how to do everything. Matt because he knows I'm fascinated with the rainstorms down there. When it rains outside, Matt's got me on uh, looking at it. FaceTime. FaceTime. I love it. I'm just pragmatic about most things. Maybe sometimes a little too pragmatic for people. Oh, and that's okay. I want to dive into you quite a bit here, but I have to talk about Matt and Holly a little bit. Matt Dolores is one of the most unique people that, that I've ever met. The rhythm with which he speaks, the cadence, his language. I mean, it's like poetry talking to Matt all the time. And I've been in the food business for a long time. And Matt was the first person that I knew of to talk about vegan stuff. And this was back in the early nineties. He used to take me out to Monterey Park and places to eat weird food that was meat substitutes and telling me that it was really going to be a thing. And I was like, Matt, I'm not so sure. He was just cutting edge and, and ahead of the curve. And when we moved to LA and opened Roxbury, I knew of Matt as a celebrity DJ. My father and Matt Sr., your ex-husband, were friends. And so we knew one another through that. But I had to get Matt as a DJ, Dolores, at Roxbury because anyone that's ever met him thinks they're his friend. He's just that charismatic. But I want to talk about your move to Los Angeles from Philadelphia. You packed up your car. And I know Holly alludes to this in her acceptance speech, which we will talk about to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But I want to just touch on what your mindset was as a single mom in, I think it was 1974, to leave. You were working in public school, and then I know you worked in some TV. You were an on-air personality for WCAU, and then later 
worked in publicity for KYW TV in Philly. So you walked away from what looks like a pretty solid career and drive across country with your two kids as a single mom. So what was that like? What was your mindset at that time? And why Los Angeles? Matt Robinson, who I call Matt's father. My husband, Matt, at one point when he was doing Sesame Street, brought Kimon Little down to Philadelphia to meet me. At Kimon and I just formed this bond. And at one point, Matt and I were having problems. Cleavon and his wife were having problems. We were on the phone morning, noon, and night. We just were the best buddies. Cleavon goes to Broadway to do a play all over town with Dustin Hoffman. And he says to me, why don't you come out and visit, stay at my house for a couple of weeks? You can just take a vacation and visit there. So I came out, I stayed two weeks. He already had somebody who was supposed to stay there and we backed out at the last minute. So I had gone back to Philadelphia and the person backed out. I just said, I love those two weeks that I spent there. I got in the car, put the kids in, attached a four by six U-Haul to that 1968 Volvo station wagon, dark green. I put Matt's little motorcycle in it. I put my sewing machine. I put a typewriter. I thought was, I did not want to stay in Philadelphia because I have a problem with pity. I knew people would feel sorry for me because my husband had left me. And I just thought, okay, Cleveland has that place out there on the beach. And he says I can come back to it because his person failed on him. So my thought was a better life, a newer life, just any kind of life, but not one where anybody felt sorry for me. I was running away from people feeling sorry for me in Philadelphia. I can't handle it. And what was Matt and Holly's reaction when you told them that you were going to move cross country? Did they resist it at all or did they welcome the idea? It was mixed. We had spent that two weeks at Cleveland's place on the beach, so they liked it. And that was an incentive, but they, they were leaving their friends. friends. They were leaving their neighborhood. They were leaving everything that they knew. And then the day that I took their dog, a couple of days before, I took the dog to a dog farm somewhere, and that was pretty disrupting. But all the neighbors were on the street. All their friends were on the street. They were all crying. I just drove off. They, of course, Holly and that. Excuse me, that damn hamster. Right, he told that story when we had her on the podcast. It's hilarious. Holly, that damn hamster that, it was named Lionel Hamster that died in the desert because a big problem while we were driving here. But the biggest problem that we had when we were driving here, their grandmother died. Their grandmother passed away as we were getting into Williams, Arizona, because we were going to go to the Grand Canyon. And we had to skip our trip to the Grand Canyon and head straight to L.A. because their mother had just died. Because I thought we were going to get there and just get on a plane and drive back some funeral service or something. But for the most part, once they got there and hit that beach, Matt, he got a surfboard. And then the next thing you know, he was carrying a surfboard. <laughs> I remember the day I was standing outside and 
this very snobbish thing used to happen in Malibu. There was always this thing about the valley. Malibu people were superior to valley people and blah, blah, blah. And when I heard my son out there standing on the beach yelling, valley go home, what did I go wrong? But when he was just joining his snobbish Malibu friends, I think that once they got there and settled in, Charlie ran into some things. She ran into a bit of bigotry at Webster Elementary School. I think one little girl who turned out to be her best friend later called her a black witch or something like that. But you have to understand when we moved there, there was one, two other black families, three black families, Junior Walker of Junior Walker and All-Stars, Blick Wilson and Piper Clark's family. And Piper was Holly's friend who went to school with her. Well, we were the black family. So that was an adjustment too. So Dolores, I know that you were hired as a receptionist at a talent agency and then eventually got promoted to agent. But at what point did you know that you made the right decision, that moving to Los Angeles was the right call? Cleveland's agent was Maggie Henderson. And she had come out to the beach to a Cleveland event and met me and told Cleveland, that girl's an agent, doesn't know it. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And so she offered me a job as a secretary in her office. And, you know, about snobbish people who have college degrees. I had a college degree. I was a school teacher. Did not become a secretary. What I didn't, I went backwards to go forward. I didn't know what I was doing, but I accepted the job because it was the only job I had. I had to support my children. So I said, I did it. I'm a survival. And click, it, it just rang in. I, I liked it too. I was having fun with it. Meeting all those celebrities, that was fun. And I was representing people that I thought I'd never, ever meet in life. And there they were talking to me on the phone, trying to talk to her. But it was Matt. The one thing I tell you about Matt, when we were living in Malibu at one point, Matt would walk down the beach and be a line of kids following him. He was like a Pied Piper. Everywhere he went, people just loved him. Yeah, I can totally see that. Matt has that effect on people. But back to what you were just saying, Dolores, you're a beautiful woman coming from the East Coast, educated. You'd been on camera in Philly. Did you ever consider a career in front of the camera? I did it in Philadelphia. When I was public relations director there, this friend of Matt's named Joanne O'Donnell told head of publicity at KYW that she knew this girl and took me in to meet the head of, I didn't know what publicity was. I was really very naive. I'm a country girl. And so I didn't know what most of these things were. And so I told him I didn't know what public relations was and he hired me. So I became a public relations director at KYW. And the programming director it was like a buddy coming by my desk every day and having fun conversations with me. He said, let's do a kid show with you. And I guess the idea of a kid show came from Matt, Sesame Street, his wife's kid show. So I did it. And I did two of them there. And it was fun. They have a photograph of me in, at KYW now, hanging in the KYW Hall of Fame. But it really has a picture of me and Holly. It's there because of Holly. But I never, ever thought of myself as an on-camera person. I'm not an actress, more a show off than an actress. <laughs> That's great. Because you 
again, back to founding your, you go into management. I think it was 1976 around that time. And that you were drawn to the business side of the business was a really unique and bold move. You open up a management company and you land your first client, I believe was LeVar Burton and big deal at the time. How significant was that? And what was it like? What made you decide I'm going into management and how did you go after LeVar? It was because LeVar was a client in that agency that I went to work. He was away doing this unknown show at the time called Roots. And he came back. He was a student at USC. And he came back and he came into the office and to meet the new person in the office, who was me. And of course, we bonded. And after Roots aired, the agency had all kinds of jobs lined up for him. Sitcoms, which I thought was just the worst idea ever. This guy has done this classical thing and Roots had turned into such a big thing, which was unexpected. But the agent wanted, he saw money and he wanted him to do a sitcom and he had all kinds of offers. To, can you imagine Kunta doing a sitcom? It just was unimaginable to me. So what I did was at night, I would tell him, the agency would tell him, give him offers in the daytime. I'd call him up at night and tell him what not to do. And that was really yeah. the beginning of me officially managing. And then at one point, it became clear that, and I had no money. It wasn't that I had packing. I just had my kitchen counter and a telephone. But it became clear that he had a future. And I really wanted to be a part of it. And I just took the shot and did it. I'd say. So you also helped launch the careers of Martin Sheen, Mark Wahlberg, Jada Pinkett Smith. Emilio Estevez, and of course, Holly Robinson-Pete. Other clients included Wesley Snipes, Linda Florentino, Kadeem Hardison, Jason Patrick, Randy Quaid, Elizabeth Shue, Rosie Perez, Pierce Bronson. I mean, it, Dolores, that's a heavy list. So how did the process work? Were managers who were connected necessary to attract agents? How did you recruit talent? And what was your particular pitch? I have to say before, I meant to tell you this. That the first person I ever made a commission off of was Dick Gregory when I was living in Philadelphia. Some people knew I knew Dick Gregory. And so they asked me if I would try to get him to come in and speak at their event. And I did. And then they said, how much would it cost? So I asked him and he told me how much would it cost. And I went back and told them and we got the money. And he gave me a 10% commission. I said, and that's all I had to do. So the idea was in my head then that, that I could do something. I can do other people. But LeVar was my only client for a long time because I was so caught up in traveling with him. He traveled the world because he was popular all over the world. We went to Australia. I was in Japan, all over Europe. We met real culture containing relatives in Denmark. It was such an adventure and we just had a great time. I was loving it. So I wasn't, you know, ready to settle down. It was too many wonderful lifetime adventures for a girl who'd never been anywhere. You know, we know my background. My background was probably a little colored child born in Pennsylvania in a house with an outhouse, no running water. So it was a great 
scary from me to even to college and to teaching and to so I was just like moving up all the time. I just kept stepping up. I don't know where it came from, but I just kept doing it. And, and at some point, though, it said, okay, you got these kids to support. You can't just live off this one voice income. So one day I was walking into the supermarket in Malibu and I passed Martin Sheen. I was pushing a basket one way, he's pushing a basket the other way. And I stopped and introduced myself. I said, you don't know me, but our kids go to school together because his son Emilio and Matt were good buddies at Malibu Park Junior High School. And then I said, I hear you're going to do la di da di da I named this project. And he said, yeah. I said, whoever put you in that after apocalypse now is doing you a disservice. I could do better for you. How bold. He said. You could? I said, yeah, I could. I would certainly not go backwards. That's going backwards. That Your build behind that guy? No, that's not the right move. He liked it. He said, come on up to my house. Let's talk to my wife. I went up to his house that evening. Early on, right after I left the market, I went up there. And we sat and we chit-chatted and chit-chatted. And she liked me. I liked her. We all liked each other. And he said, well, think about it. But meantime, want to go out with us tonight? So he took me out on a double date. We went to see a play called Da, starring Barnard Hughes. And my date got in the car and I turned around and looked and it was Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. By this time, I'm like blown away. The world is mine. <laughs> I would say. Dolores, it strikes me, not only did you have the courage to speak up to him in a grocery store, but you knew what you were talking about. Where were you getting your information and your instincts about what, you know, you advised LeVar and that is what brought you guys closer and to just know what Martin Sheen should do after Apocalypse Now? Not everybody in a supermarket is going to know that. I think in all honesty, I think Matt Robinson, my husband, is was my first client. I knew he should not have left Sesame Street. I knew it. And I went about I kept him on longer than what he wanted to be on. And he left at the right time, I must say. But somehow I got into telling him what to do and he's listening. I couldn't believe anybody listened to me. But I don't know. It seems to me that if you're in a big starring movie like Apocalypse Now, you wouldn't do a beadless movie built behind a television actor. And that made sense to me that Martin should have bigger things, better. It made sense to me that Kunta Kinte should not do television series. What would it be called? What would it be? No, it was just hysterical. Sometimes I wonder, Brad, I, I have actually looked people in the face and asked them, why do you like me? Because I could never understand why people liked me, but they did. Brad, why'd you like me? I can <laughs> tell you, Loris, you're just one of those engaging people. And I think that uh, your kids are an example of how you raise them and just this beautiful family. And I've just always really enjoyed you. I know you and I, we lost our friend Diane Carroll a couple of years ago, but I remember a birthday party that we attended together and we ended up sitting together, you and I, and you just had me cracking up the whole time. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you a question and things obviously are changing. You've got people like LeBron James who are bringing along his friends from that he grew up with to be managers and to be part of his business circle. And 
I think that's great. I think it's a welcome change and why not? But when I look at the roster of people that you represented and LeVar aside, and I know Wesley was in, in the mix there too and Jada, but for the most part, there are a lot of white folks. I wonder if you had trouble attracting black talent because we, my father used to say, there's this the syndrome, the white man's ice is colder that we are inflicted with. And I just wonder how that was for you, attracting black talent. Was it difficult? My first client, in the agency business was Rosalind Cash. I brought her into that agency before LeVar was my client, but she was an agency client. Yeah, I did have problems. I had problems with black people and I had problems with white people. I remember George Christie, a Hollywood reporter, he used to write articles and he suggested a client to me at one point who was a black client. And I said, why are you suggesting him to me? Just because he's a black client, I can handle white clients as well as black clients. It's just a matter of talent. And he actually printed that in the Hollywood Reporter that Dolores Robinson told him to stop sending him black clients. That's not what I said, but that's how he printed it. And so there was some backlash from that. But at some point, it really became clear to me, Brad, that I couldn't make a living representing Black clients because studios and television stations and production companies weren't hiring Black people. At this point, I've got kids to put through college. How am I going to do this? How am I going to make money? I can't make money with Black clients. Everybody that I wanted to represent, Sydney Portier, Diane Carroll, people like that, they were already settled into their businesses And when I came along. And Black people weren't exactly trusting that I could do the job when I first started. And white people were not trusting that I could do the job when I first started. So I just had to push past all of it. Was that because you were a woman, black, or both? Both. Both. Because I was a woman, I don't know if you know this, I, I found this out afterwards, but the Conference of Personal Managers invited me to come to Las Vegas and induct me into their Hall of Fame. And... When they did, they gave me some information that I didn't know. That I was the first black female manager in film and television. I didn't know that. I had not a clue. I wasn't trying to be the first anything. I was just trying to get my kids to college. So right there, that'll tell you what was going on with women. But for color, yeah, I didn't know any other black managers. I didn't know anybody but me. I knew... No, they were all agents. Everybody was an agent. And it, it was really bold because at that time, agencies were really anti-managers. You're not only fighting clients or potential clients are fighting the system. But I have to say that there were some very important white men who helped me because white women weren't having an easy way to go either. But there were some very popular white men, Jack Valenti being the first. A black state legislator in Texas had done a favor for Jack Valenti, and Jack Valenti said, what can I do? And he said, I got a friend who just came to Los Angeles. She's in the business, and maybe you can help her because I'm not in your business. Jack Valenti set me up with a meeting with you, Wasserman, Frank Price, Mike Metavoy, every major studio or production company. Jack Valenti set me up with, and him introducing me to those people gave me some status that I would not have had. 
Yeah, that's major. Dolores, I'm curious in, in taking on, and maybe by the time someone had a meeting with you, they were somewhat established, but I'm curious when you were considering taking on a particular client, is there a certain kind of charisma that is present when they're sitting across from you, or is it just something that you see on tape or on film when you're looking for that, that intangible kind of charisma that you're looking for that star magnetism? It's a connecting is if they can connect with me and with maybe some other people in the room that may be people working with me, if they can connect. Yeah. And then there's an intelligence that I used to have a client that I used to have to tell him when you walk in the room, he's so tall because he wasn't very bright. He was just really handsome. Fact. George Clooney used to say, how come he gets all the jobs I want? And because I told him not to talk, just go in and let them ask you questions. Just answer the questions. Because when he talked, nothing came out. And he knew that there was a vacuum there. And intelligence, charm, the ability to listen, which a lot of actors can't do. And when you get in that room with that casting person and you just go on and on about yourself, that person just heard Three, four other people before you go on and on about themselves. Talk about something interesting. I used to say, pick something, pick a subject. Be interested in something when you go in that room, other than getting that role. Maybe it was an instinct, but it was looks. They had to look right, talk right, be right. It was just a whole combination of things that you just see in a person. But I have to say, at some point, I did have to see that resume. There was a point where if you were a newcomer, I had too much to do. I had people come in my office. I just remembered this when I got on a little further into the business. Rodney King came to my office because he wanted me to do a project with him. We just find this nicest man you ever want to meet. Those kind of adventures have filled my life. But Brad, you do know me also. That if nobody's there, I will talk to a chain link fence. Did you find saying no difficult, Dolores? Saying no to, to someone who wanted you to represent them? I was very diplomatic about how I said no. After a while, I learned the easiest ways to say no. It was never about them or their talent. It's generally because I had somebody like them. And that's okay because I've been fired because I took on somebody like them. So. You just learn how. You don't hurt. You don't want to hurt people. You don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to discourage them. And there are people that I met that went and turned said no and went on to become major stars. And I wasn't always right. And then I also sometimes had alternative reasons um, for taking on people. I like when I took on Hattie Davis, who was the daughter of Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time. And nobody had to tell me that wasn't press getting. I knew. I'm not sure I took her on because she was the greatest actress. She could act, but it wasn't that I thought she was the greatest. Her father was the president, and I was going to be representing the daughter of the president of the United States. It's just stuff that you do. Dolores, with your kind of instinct and intellect, I'm wondering, is there a job that you think you could have done that you didn't have the opportunity to do, run a studio? perhaps? No, I don't think that I could have ever run a studio. I dabbled in production a little bit because I produced a television series starring Montel Williams when he was my client. I produced a television series with Kadeem when he was my client. I wasn't good at that. 
I knew that. I wasn't good at that. I wasn't good at deciding what projects were great. I just remembered at one point, Suzanne DePass, who is my best Hollywood girlfriend, and I, we talked about going into business and me running the management side and her doing the production side. We talked about that for a while, but that never worked out. She and I had the exact opposite experiences in life. This is a girl who was born with a silver spoon in her mouth, golden spoon in her mouth. When she moved to Martha's Vineyard, her first baby crib, her bassinet, was Adam Clayton Powell's log basket. I don't think that there was anything else I was really meant to do. So you've been in town for a long time and you've seen many cycles and been close up to the entertainment business to see how it has evolved for people of color, in particular black folks. And Dolores, I can remember back in the 90s, walking the halls of major talent agencies, ICM, William Morris, CAA, and not seeing a black face anywhere, not even at the reception desk. And executives in positions of power were basically unheard of. The system has been painfully slow on the diversity and inclusion front. But that said, there has been some significant improvement. And in your opinion, has there ever been a better time for Black people in the entertainment business than now? Never. Never. Right now, if I were to go back and become a manager right now, I could make a real good living managing all Black clients. I wouldn't have to think that I'd have to sign white clients. I could take Black clients now and make a very good living, which Back then, there was no way that you could do that. To see studios, to production companies, Oscars were produced by a black man last year. Can't talk about the slap. I actually have, I do want to question you about that, but you continue and I'll ask it after. It's just that the world is opening and it's a dangerous, troubling world because at some point, I want to tell you, talk about the political there's a heavy political side of me. So I'm very troubled about the world. But as far as race is concerned, and I think that race is causing a part of the problems of the political problems in the world. While things are moving ahead on one hand, there's that pressure over there to try to stop. It. That leads me to my next question. So how would you say if there is some momentum, Dolores, in terms of the progress that people of color are making in the entertainment business, what will it take to sustain that? Doing meaningful projects that mean something, not bullshit projects. We've been through enough of them. Doing things that have purpose and that can further our struggle because white production companies avoid that and have been, and I'm afraid, still do a lot. And it's the best time for intelligent, talented Black people to put their foot in this business and make their footprint bigger and bigger. Dolores, I think that's such an important message. We have all the streaming services, Hulu, Netflix, what have you. And as you scroll around trying to find a decent movie to watch, I often ask myself, who said yes to this? Just the stories that get told, and I'm not talking about necessarily African-American related projects, but just generally speaking. And I know it's a creative process. Making movies is not easy. A lot of things have to come together. But someone had to say, yes, this is a good idea. And some of these obscure, just ridiculous, ill-founded movies to me get made. And to your point, I think while we have the opportunity to make content, we've got to make quality content. 
Yeah. Some of it is. A lot of it's not. I hardly ever really go to the movies anymore. COVID didn't help that. But the last movie I really actually went to the theater to see was Black Panther. Man, Cindy took me. I'm a true crime buff. So I really like real stuff more than the made-up movies. I'd rather see real crime and try to figure that out than see actors act. I came here to Palm Springs to get away from all of that. And I really came here to write a book, which I am writing. And I was hiding out and doing very well down here, hiding out with people, nobody knowing I was here. And then Palm Springs Women in Film, God bless their soul, gave me the Broken Glass Ceiling Award. And all of a sudden I was exposed. And then I became this little popular kind of person in Palm Springs. I judged a karaoke contest a couple weeks ago. Well, congratulations on that award. Well-deserved. All right, let me dig a little Hollywood out of you. And you had just mentioned this. We've had a few months to, to process this, but if you were representing Will Smith, what would you be telling him to do now to rehabilitate himself based after what, what happened? I have to give you a little history first. Will and I are friends because we're both Philadelphia people and Philadelphia people and showbiz all kind of stick together. Lee Daniels, Patty, LaBelle, me, and Will and a few others. And Chris Rock, one of my best friends. His mama just spent three weeks down here in Palm Springs with me. And that's a family thing. When I go back east, I stay at Chris's house and all that kind of stuff. So there's a close relationship there. And just throw a little stuff in the game. I'm represented Jada for three years. So you're talking to a girl who knows this from the inside, but not really, but really. I would tell Will to sit down and be quiet and do a lot of work on himself because something was going on inside of him for him to do what he did on the most important night of his entire career for him to do that. There, something else is happening. So I would work on what is happening that made you get up and do that and take my time and not, not come out and try to explain. And for God's sakes, don't ask Chris for a meeting because what's Chris need to meet him about? Chris didn't do anything. Well, well it, it, he's making it like it's equal. It's not. So I just wish he would just, just be quiet and if it's therapy that he needs. Whatever it is that makes him understand, truly understand why he did that, then I think he will act appropriately. I don't know what, I don't know if he'll do that because I see him trying to work his way back in. And he has fans, but it's going to be difficult for him because there are people like me who are just wondering why. It, it wasn't alopecia, bottom line. Will obviously reached the level of stardom that few do. The box office and, and hit after hit wealth, I mean, beyond what anybody or probably what he ever thought he would attain. Does that somehow, Dolores, seep into your mind and you lose perspective of a moment? Because like you said, that was the biggest moment of his life. And to have worked as hard as he did and maintain his public persona the way that he did so meticulously to not throw it away because hopefully he makes a comeback. I'm rooting for him. I don't want to see this be the end of Will Smith. 
but clearly, as you said, something was going on. Is it the Hollywoodness of the roles and who you've become that makes you lose perspective, or am I off on that? Rats. Academy Award's been going on a long time. A lot of big stars with a lot of big careers. When have you ever seen anybody do anything like that? No, it's not Hollywood. It's not that. It's something else. It's, it's something personal within him that, that did that. It's not Hollywood. Hollywood makes you want to pretend that you've worked so hard to build. Seeing more people turn into the biggest bullshitters protecting themselves. The tendency is to protect that, not destroy it. He destroyed. Let me push you a little bit on that and not to make it too personal because I know he was a dear friend of yours. But when you look at the Me Too movement and how that's changed the culture in Hollywood and some of the behavior that seemed okay 20 years ago, all of a sudden could end somebody's career and cancel them. I think of someone like Les Moonves, who I knew personally and had a great relationship with Les and was really surprised that, as were a lot of folks, that he had to duck out the way that he did based on what he was accused of. But is that a matter of the rules changing and good people getting caught in the rule change? Or is that a power thing gone awry with folks that have abused their position? It's men. If you can edit me out wherever you decide, but there's a person up in, in Los Angeles and I, a documentary filmmaker, and she and I talked about doing a documentary called Men and Their Dicks. And it goes from Bill Clinton to Les Moonves, who I also knew. He was one of my best friends. Holly got married on his house. I like to put it like this. I mean, you can edit this part out. But, but that sexual thing that happens in men, it does keep the world going because we need to keep making babies. We need to keep making people. It's a natural thing. At the same time, I get it. And women, we're lucky because if we're walking down the street and we see a man then sexually attractive to us, our tits don't jump up. We don't have that extra thing that causes men to behave badly. It's the best, it's the only way I can put it that there's an extra dimension that causes them to behave badly. And the fact that they are kings of the world. They are white men run the world. And white men have a superior attitude. And remember Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney told a joke once. He said, Black women, you want your husband to leave you? Just tell him. He'll go. He might even pay you to let him go. White women? Your husband, you're going to leave your, your husband. husband. You better get in the witness protection program first. That superior attitude, that fact that I am superior, I can do what I want and I can get away with it, is what I think causes that bad behavior. So edit me out. No, I think that's real. And you're not saying anything that's not true. And it's interesting to hear it from your perspective.
So just starting to wind down a little bit here, and I do want to talk about the Walk of Fame because I watched that ceremony and it was very moving. But before I do, Dolores, Hollywood can be a tough and a tricky place, obviously. We know that. A lot of people have heard stories, but we know it to be true. You can lose your way. You, your family, and that extends to Rodney, the grandkids. You just kept it together in such a way that's just so admirable. You really are some of the nicest people on the planet and just consistently so. Every time I see Holly, she's the same. Rodney's the same, Matt, just love him and you, but I know it hasn't been easy, but what, if there's a key to that kind of lifestyle and longevity in the good lane, what might that be? I don't know. I think, yeah, it's that all roses. We have our family dysfunction as well as any other family has their dysfunction. Ours is not a perfect family. I represent my daughter. My daughter's an actress. Imagine the difficulty. I managed her for years. So that right there is, can cause all kinds of, but I don't know. I, there's just something that we do. I think when I say that I will on Springs to buy my business, that's a big part of it. And Brad, talk about my family. Brad, do you know my grandson is actually in Tokyo? Robinson, my 19 year old grandson. Graduated from high school, got on a plane and went to Tokyo to study Japanese culture. What is that? That's, see, that's the kind of stuff I don't understand about that happens in my family. We do stuff. And I don't know where it comes from. Every one of us has our own little individual thing that we do. Where it is, when I look at my children and my grandchildren, we're all, I guess we're all just start raving individuals. But I think that's probably what it takes. And, we respect the other's individuality. Yeah, yeah, I see that as I'm thinking through the members of your family. I see each one of them as individuals in their own way, unique and in their own and in their own regard. So, Dolores, as I mentioned, Holly a couple of months back received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and the first words that she spoke in as part of her prepared remarks were about you, and she got emotional as she thanked you for what she referred to as quote a page one rewrite of your life when you loaded up the car and headed west to California. You and Matt were in attendance. It was a big deal. Magic Johnson was there. Talk about that moment. How did that feel and what was going through your mind? Was that like the icing on the cake? Yeah, uh, I wasn't expecting that. She actually started out by saying to everybody she was going to try to make me cry because old pragmatic me, they all are well aware of it. But what I think about that, is that we, when she, while she's giving credit to me, I'm giving credit to the whole we of us, her dad and brother and the family. We made our mark because long after I'm dead, Holly's dead, grandchildren are dead, great-grandchildren are dead, that star down there in that cement will live after us. So it means a lot to me that I was a part of making a permanent mark in the world that, in, in the fact that I created a baby that did that and then created a world for her that she could do that. That's a big thing for a mother. Dolores, when you think about the whole story, and I want to ask you about your memoir, because it's just call it a Hollywood success story, call it a human success story, call it a mother family success story. And I don't, I don't mean to take Matt senior out of the mix because I know that he, he had a presence and brought a lot to the table, but by the way, 
Those genes of his are in them. They didn't get that round of stuff from me. Dolores, you to be here and as clear as you are, as bright as you are, and to have seen as much as you have and to have guided your family in the way that you have. I was just so happy for all of you in that moment and uh, just really glad to see it happen. So this memoir, where are we? Is it coming? Are you working on it daily? Do you have help? What's the story? My, my favorite line these days to get attention, which I always get attention for, and I do it purposely to get attention, is that I am four years from 90. I love saying that I'm four years from 90. And being four years from 90, I've lived a long time and I have a lot of stories to tell. People ask me, why are you writing a book? And I ask them back, how many presidents have you ever met? And the answer is usually one to zero. With me, Oh, no. My first presidential occasion was standing at the corner of 63rd and Haverford in Philadelphia. And John F. Kennedy rode by on convertible. And I was standing there with a red coat and a straw hat with Kennedy Johnson on it. And he, you couldn't miss me. And I was standing there with my husband and one of our neighbors were standing on the corner, like five of us on that corner. And he looked over and saw me and pointed to me. And I just went, yes, he just pointed to me. And they all said, no, he was pointing at me. And he saw what was going on. And he looked over again and pointed directly at me again. That was the beginning of my political career. I have gone on from then to Bill Clinton calling me mama. And Holly and I went to the dedication of his library in Little Rock, Arkansas. Jimmy Carter's grandson used to work for me. Barack Obama, that's easy. He named me his California mother. I raised money for Barack Obama to go to the Senate. When I belonged to the Hollywood Women's Political Committee and Senator Joe Biden used to come there. I, Bill Clinton was the easiest one because he thought he was the first black president. But Obama, the Obamas, I'm going to tell you this one little story. Fast. The Obamas always remember me. People run into the Obamas and they'll say, Dolores Robinson. And they'll say, Oh, yeah, how is she saying hello? Now, of the 40 zillion people, he was president of the world, the 40 zillion people, why they know me? Because that man, Michelle Obama, held out a Bible, a beat up old, tattered black Bible. And Barack put his hand on that Bible and swore to be the best president of the United States for the world, embossed in gold along the bottom of that Bible. It said Dolores Robinson. Now, how'd that happen? How did that happen? I'm the most religious person in the world. That is, that man swore in to, on the Bible with my name on it because Michelle Obama's grandmother's name is Dolores Robinson. That's the best. I love that. But it's fitting. It's fitting. I went out to Chicago way back when and got Jesse Jackson to come to Philadelphia to help get rid of Frank Rizzo, who was the bigoted mayor there. I had the nerve to go to Chicago and knock on his door and become friends with him and his wife forever. And it's just been a whole political world for me at Kamala. Kamala's mother, Shamala, and I were friends. And Kamala, when her mother passed, adopted me as her one of her mothers. I got a daughter. I, we did the salvage interview, Holly and Colin and I, 
And Holly told Connelly, you've made it really rough for me because my mother wanted me to be in politics. And Connelly said, I made it easy for you because now your mother has a daughter who's a senator. Come on. It's fun stuff like that. I've, my life has just been, I just meet the right people, Brand, I met you. And somehow I'd luck out into meeting the right people. We've all gotten lucky, Dolores, to have met you. And just want to re-emphasize just how extremely kind you and your family have been to me over the years, Holly, Rodney, and Matt. And again, I just have a, a, such a special love for Matt. That's my man, but I treasure you all. And I'm just, you know, grateful that you joined me today. And I look forward to my wife and I to visiting with you and hanging out in Palm Springs. I can't wait. I just wanted something else. What? Because you asked me about song, what music? Mm. And I just want, if I have an all-time favorite song, it's sitting on the dock of the bay. I, that, that is, to me, the most favorite, deeply touching song that I had ever heard. And it just makes me swish all over whenever swish. I swish. How would you describe swishing? I don't know. I just hug me when I stand it. <laughs> I'm hugging you from here. Dolores Robinson, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. And thank you for taking the time to join. And I'm hugging you back and love to Linda. And thank you. This is such a pleasure for me. At four years from 90, who cares about old people like me other than people like you? Thank you for respecting us. We all care. And I'm coming back at 90. So we're going to do part two at 90. Oh, perfect. All right. I got you locked in. The last thing I'm going to tell you, did you know that I have tattooed on my wrist 104 as my expiration date? So you got, got time. Dolores Roberts. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you.